welcome back to the Making a Difference for Us podcast. I'm your host, Margo, and I'm joined today by Edwin, Kevin, Jim, and Christine. Today, we will be discussing energy and the environment. Our questions for today are, what are some of the challenges facing startups in the renewable energy space today? And is it the role of the private sector to invest in green technology, or should it be the government's role to invest in green technology? Jim, if you'll go ahead and start us out. Sure, Margo. Thank you. Um... This is uh, obviously a very hot topic these days, and uh, especially given what's going on in the world with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Europe's reliance on some of the power from there. Uh, I think it's opening a lot of people's eyes into some realities that we've been ignoring for a long time. So if I look at these questions, um, the challenges to me are facing reality you know, I look at what we've done so far in renewable energy. We we actually started with stuff like, uh, you know, water power um, a century or more ago, building dams, and it's extremely reliable, extremely consistent energy. Um, you know, that to me is a, a key point that we've missed as we've progressed and gone into wind and solar, extremely intermittent forms of energy, and uh, on the flip side, not very energy dense at all. And so I think as we kind of retrench with current events, the key is going to be looking at what really works in our world, what's going to power an energy-hungry future. So those are the challenges that I see for renewable energy as we look at it. And then on the investment side, I I don't even think government and investment are two words that should go together because the problem is with government, there's no risk of failure. There's no accountability. And so you look at things like Solyndra, you spend $500 million of taxpayer money and it goes poof. And who pays the bill? We do. Um, nobody who made those decisions suffers any ill effects. So private industry, one of the key strengths is it's people risking their own money and they can gain great rewards or they can lose big. And they have the skin in the game to make things happen the right way because of that. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And Kevin, if you'd like to go ahead and give us your response to the two questions today. Hey, Jim, thanks for your, your take. Hey, I want to start off with a little joke, and I, I kind of find this kind of irrelevant to what we're looking at. And this is when Etwin was stuck in a flood and turned to God. I don't know if you guys ever heard that joke. As the flood rose, Etwin was on his porch of his house and praying that God would save him from drowning in the flood. Just then, another man came by in a rowboat. That man yelled out that Etwin said, invited him in to save him. And Etwin said, no, no, thank you. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. The water kept rising, and Etwin had to go up to the second floor of his house. As he looked out the window, he saw another man in a motorboat. That man in the motorboat came. Hey, Etwin, I'm here to save you. The man in the house, which was Etwin, said, no thanks. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. The water kept rising. Soon Etwin was forced to climb on top of his roof. A helicopter flew by. And the man, that man being Etwin again, uh, basically he lowered a rope down to Etwin standing there and and that one said no no you know he said there no thank you i'm waiting for god to rescue me and all of a sudden that one and the flood rose higher and higher and before you know it that one drowned and he goes up and then all of a sudden he meets god and he says god why didn't you rescue me from that flood and god turned around and said, what more do you want from me i sent you two boats and a helicopter you know so sometimes you got to look at that simple joke and kind of chuckle over it because today's climate and environment, we're trying to figure out which is what. It's a chicken or the egg. 
you know, from this standpoint, you know, um, I really believe that our scientists and engineers and people up there are once again, trying to provide the people what little knowledge that they have from what we can actually look back in that inevitable piece, you know, as we look at this. And some of the things I really want to look at because the problems that we're faced with today is money and how we look at it. So I kind of went back and I looked at it from an engineering side because since I'm a knucklehead, I look back in 1912, the Model T cost 680 bucks. In today's perspective, it would be $18,000. But in today's perspective, when we looked at that Model T, you know what the Model T was equipped with other than lamps, a horn, a hood, and some tools, okay? But if we sat back there and say, let me go buy a car for $18,000 and have that, who in the heck would actually buy that piece? All right, now let's look back to 1984. It was the release of the cell phone. And I remember that day. And I know at one, he was the first one because he's got deep pockets. It would, you know, that that time was $4,000 for that phone. And today's, looking at it, it's, it would be worth $10,000 today. But today we can buy a phone for less than under $500. But unless, you know, once again, you know, some of my counterparts, they, they have that, you know, deep pockets and they have that first phone, iPhone, which is about $2,000. So what I'm trying to get to is that we got to understand our situations because sometimes it just can't be apparent in front of us. We have to recognize that there are companies, you know, clean energy companies that are trying to do the right thing and trying to get in front of everybody to making sure that the challenge of renewable energy is costly. Just like I talked about earlier, today it may cost millions, maybe billions, but in 20 years from now, that same cost could cost us trillions of dollars and also deal with some of the things that some of the scientists are actually screaming to us and saying, here's the things. We have to start understanding there is a difference between the two when we're talking about global warming and climate change. Uh, global warming sits in the umbrella under climate change. Global warming has been around. We've seen our, 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 our world change by two degrees Fahrenheit over the last 100 years. And we're seeing that rise and increase. So I know from a fact of living in California and living in Michigan, when I was in Michigan, when I first started living there 35 years ago, in November, well, our, our lakes were frozen thick and we had shanties on top of them. When I left uh, Michigan uh, two years ago, we don't have that. We get a small window between January to March and looking at those ice at this piece. So I don't know if it's just my sure luck, but I believe there is roughly what I saw was 48% of people believe in climate change. And what I mean by climate change, we're starting to see that in our environment, what's happening to our planet, including rising of the sea level, sh shrinking and mountain glaciers, the acceleration of ice melting in Greenland, Antarctica, and all the places around the shift in the flowers and the plants that bloom around the world as we see it. So I think right now there are signs again. I'm going to go back to my, my little riddle that about God. He's giving you all of these options and trying to face with those inevitables. But we still continue to have faith in God, not faith in science, and, and the trust. And one of the things I want to look at, too, um, as we're talking about you know energy, there's a lot of issues when we're talking about this. How do we line up with those pieces when we're looking at energy? And the majority of what we talk about in today's world, I think we need to start really diving into it. It is not a political issue. 
it is not an individual issue. It is a global issue that we need to come together and start looking at it and trying to hold each other accountable to maybe one day dealing with that flood and drowning and go up to God and say, uh, why didn't you have me? Well, I gave you some scientists that sort of didn't really know. I gave you the government that sort of helps you. We try to look at things around us that didn't help you, but now you're faced with those obstacles that I basically sent out to you. Um, like you said, overall, I'm just kind of keeping it simple and obvious, but I think we do have a problem with uh, our energy and our environment. Thank you, Kevin and Christine. If you'd like to go ahead and give us your thoughts on today's questions. Thanks, Margo, and thanks, Jim and Kevin, for your responses so far. I find myself aligning with Jim on many things in this in this topic so far, um, in particular to what what's going on in Ukraine, in Ukraine, and what um, the trickling effects to the rest of the world. And we think about that with um, challenges that uh, startups face when they're in the renewable energy space today. I don't know how to break up our two questions actually, because really I think a lot of it comes down to funding and how to create a product, create a design, create a vision that is going to um, not only convince folks that it's worth investing in because the outcome as far as the energy sources are going to be more beneficial for us as a whole, but also they have to follow through with that. And that has to be the outcome. Um, but where the funding is going to come from, I don't believe it should come from the government. I, I really like what you said, Jim, about the, the consequences piece, because that's huge. Like me as a small business owner, if I'm going to go and like, I could maybe apply for a grant or I could maybe apply for something, but oftentimes I have to have my business in order. If it's a for-profit business, I have to have it operating for a year or so. And where do I get the funding in before that? Well, I just have to work my butt off or take out a private loan. And if something if, if I fall short or my vision falls short or something with the concept falls short, well, then I'm the one that suffers. Um, and I feel like if the kind of what you said, Jim, if the government decides to take the lead on certain things, in particular funding um, for some renewable energy sources, then we as the tax pay taxpayers are the ones that are going to suffer if, if something falls short. That being said, like, I, I don't know how, like when we think about renewable energy, if we're talking about solar or wind or water or whatever it may be, um, I think about, you know, the expansion of the grid when it comes to solar or uh, wind energy. I don't know how else to get the funding for the get the funding to make the an impact a difference enough that it's going to support the nation as a whole um, without it coming from the government. I guess it could be private investors, but sometimes with these, with these startups, I don't know. I think that there's just, we're, they're fighting an uphill battle <laughs> in a sense, I think too, about if we're, we're in this lane of what's going on with our energy sources and we're trying to veer toward a different lane and the different lane being something that um, the environment loves more, that, uh, people love more and that is just going to be a better outcome for everybody. I think it's just kind of an uphill battle. We've dug ourselves deep enough and I think that there's a lot of um, truth that hasn't been revealed, which we'll get to a little later, I'm sure, that you know we're really good at using trendy words, I think, as a society that's going to really lure people in like um, you know, renewable energy. Da, 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 da. Well, what does that totally mean? And who's going to suffer during this change? I'm not. I'm not anti-renewable energy by any means. I'm. I would love to see how that could have a greater impact. Um, 
but as far as startups, if they're not getting the money from the government, which I don't think they should, then it should be private investors. Yet, I think that they're setting themselves up for an uphill battle that we should try to go down. Like we should try to go down that path, but um, it's not going to be easy. Thanks, Margo. Thank you, Christine. And Edwin, if you'd like to go ahead and give us your thoughts on today's questions. Sure. I, I appreciate what uh, Kevin, Jim, and Christine said. I totally respect their view. Uh, you know, I think the biggest challenge with any renewable energy today is, you know, the cost is one. The other piece, the largest piece with, with uh, renewable energy is transmission. How do you get all these renewable energy? Solar to somewhere, how do you get hydro to somewhere? How do you get wind to somewhere? When you look at all the, the different methods of alternative energy, not really reducing the, the, the greenhouse gases because you're having to produce, store, you have to tear up you know, to put transmission lines in, you're going to have to tear up the earth. You're going to have to have, you know, at a minimum, some temporary work being done to, to put transmission lines in. And then you've got the depository of all that stuff. Once it's all done, all the uh, waste. So, you know, I think there's, there's probably some better ways to do it. And I think we've, we're, you know, we're in a time where it can't be a government project. It's got to be privatized. It's got to be a, um, free market enterprise type situation where most things that we use today is out of the private sector anyway, even if it got at some point regulated by the government, it was probably produced in the private sector to begin with. So uh, we look at all the, all the issues and, you know, we look at global warming, global warming. Yeah. It's all about the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and how it's increasing and potentially affecting the, the, the weather. Climate change just refers to, you know, Climate is changing, whether it's more rain, temperatures rising, and wind patterns. But if you look at, we've only tracked this for the last 100 years. In the last 100 years, it shows like the first 40 years of that 100 years, we showed a rise in temperature. In the last 40 to 50 years, we've seen a drop in temperatures. However, a lot of people would argue that, but I would say there's a guy, Dr. Fred Singer, who is a environmentalist out of, uh, out of Princeton, out of the University of Virginia as a professor. He said, hey, you know what? Temperature that's being taken today, that's, that's being talked about in far, as far as climate change, the temperature is being taken by thermometers in heavily populated areas, because that's where your schools are, that's where all the research centers are. And of course, where it's heavily populated, you're gonna have more people. More people produce more heat more, and more people produce more gas. If you go in areas that are not populated, you will show that, it will show that the temperature is actually dropping somewhat. So if you look at a scientific model, it looks like it's a cycle where the temperature actually is dropping in unpopulated areas, temperatures rising in heavily populated areas. So whether or not we think it's a, 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 a vital issue or a critical issue, it may not be, and this may be a population issue. So in order to control the, uh, the gases being emitted into the atmosphere, those gases are mainly coming from heavily populated areas. So these areas that are not, we still have green trees and, and fresh streams and all these things that we think is getting ruined. They're really not at this point. They're, they're getting ruined in populated areas. So either we can do something about controlling how we deal with the population to help cut down on the pollution, but I don't think we're gonna ultimately get rid of these greenhouse gases just because we continue to grow as a population and that's you know, that's natural. Dr. Singer said something that was kind of funny. He said, hey, if the temperature's rising just a bit and 
it doesn't show that CO2 in the atmosphere is causing anything, any like live plants or anything like that to grow less. He said, if the temperatures rise in just a bit, that means we're going to have a larger growing season, meaning people can grow things a little bit longer throughout the year. And if it's a little bit warmer, we'll use less fossil fuels heating our homes. Maybe not a bad thing, right? Thank you. Transitioning into the open discussion, I'd like to provide a little food for thought. Most of you mentioned that research on global warming and climate change should come from the private sector. Do you think that companies such as Amazon, who have highly impacted global warming, should be responsible for investing some of their profits into research and development of green energy and alternatives that decrease the effect of climate change? Hey, Margo, I'd like to <laughs> jump on that. This is one of the pieces that we're looking at is private sectors being a major impact to the environment. But then again, how do we regulate that piece from, you know, once again, you know, keeping, you know, big businesses to sit there and be responsible for everyone. So to me, it is a tough one because I really believe that it's everyone's responsibilities. You know, once again, you know, you get that one percenters that come back there and say, we could be able to eliminate hunger if we had more of that, you know, of the one percenters helping. You know, there's a lot of things that we're looking at it is, you know, why should uh, Amazon be a factor into that piece is no different than someone else in a smaller sector. You know, how do we weight that and how do we sit there and now focus on those individuals? Because now we're still, now we're giving that company more power and more responsibilities than other sectors of the country. So I don't know. I, I wish I had an answer to that because this is one of the pieces that we have a lot of people who don't believe in that. And if, if, uh, those top companies sit there and don't believe in it. So why should they actually be accountable for that? So that's just my take. It's just something that we have to look at it collectively, you know, looking at those pieces. And I'm just kind of curious on what you guys, you know, that one in, in gym, because I, I think this is such a slippery slope because we're going to put the pressure on individuals, but we don't want to put the government into it because we're talking about big um, and having big government into our back um, pocketbook or uh, everything in general. I just think that we have to really look at that very seriously. I think we need to have, a, I think everybody independently should be responsible for controlling the amount of waste that they may have. Mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, I think that's just normal. That's just good business. Right. So I also believe, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they talked about having a global carbon tax. Do you recall that Jim? So global carbon tax does nothing but impact like, you know, people that can't afford things today, all of a sudden they're having to pay a global carbon tax. That, it puts another problem, puts another, you know, again, you're taking something that's privatized and regulating it at that point and making the government part of it. So now you've got people having to pay for something that, you know, they can't buy food, but you're gonna charge them a carbon tax. It's not a good idea either, right? So I think we just have the responsibility. To... Go ahead. I'm with you 100%, but the question is, is we have to start at least agreeing to saying there is a problem. And, and that's the thing that we have to do. And do we have that consensus? You know, when we're talking about, cause you were talking about earlier that 1% is actually, you know, the, well, the temperature increase by one degree is a, you know, based on you know, your, your uh, doctor who was stating that that's a benefit we can actually grow things. That's one perspective. And then the other place is that, you know, living here in California, the temperatures, cause our fifth season is the fire season because we're not getting the rains. So you know, I'm, I'm just gonna just throw that out and you guys will probably have a perspective on that. You know, but, and then when we hear on the news, we're talking about, ah, it's because uh, people not managing it. No, 
it is just basically, you know, right now it's now March here and I will not see rain until November. I'm pretty sure it's not greenhouse gases that are keeping you from getting rain. Well, I, I don't, that's, that's the whole piece. That's, that's the once again, yeah. you know, a perspective on your view with the, you know, really, you know, over time, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, but well, if, you look at, if you look at revolution, uh, you know, things that happened in the past that are happening again, I think you'd probably see a cycle of it. Go ahead, Jim. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I appreciate that. Um, boy, I have a bunch of points to make. Um, to your point, Kevin, on agreeing that there's a problem, uh, no, uh, certainly not to the extent that uh, people primarily on the left today are making about what to me is just utter hysteria, this climate crisis garbage. Um, there's no basis, in fact, for any of that. They talk about increasing frequency of storms and blah, blah, blah. That's not happening. Storms are decreasing in uh, occurrence and power. There's greater property damage, but that's because your one percenters are building big houses on the coast and not paying for their insurance, and the government picks that up too. And by the way, Christina, I wanted to mark the calendar and appreciate this time when you and I finally agreed on something. Um, also going to your point earlier, Kevin, about your experience, the, the ice on lakes in the winter that isn't there anymore. You know, if I look at my dad's experience, born in 1927, um, he would have seen the heat waves of the 1930s, which exceeded anything that you and I have experienced in our lifetimes. Some of the worst heat in modern history. And then he would have seen temperatures drop steadily into the 1970s, which were an unseasonably cold time. That's what you're remembering. In fact, you may also remember that the hysteria in the 1970s was global cooling. That was what we were all going to die from and why the government needed all our money. So let's step back a little bit away from the grifters and the power mongers who want to use these dreamed up crises only to enrich themselves and gain more control over our lives. Is there a problem? I would go to CO2 levels. And, you know, the reality is CO2 levels are increasing. It's a proven fact. Um, let's talk about the actual level of CO2, though. Does anyone here know how much CO2 there is in the atmosphere? No, OK. So it's right now at about 450 parts per million, right? That's tiny. <laughs> that, is, that is a trace gas. So you know, we talk about nitrogen and oxygen, the, uh, the primary components of our atmosphere. Um, CO2 is a rounding error against those things. It is rising and it is a greenhouse gas. Um, so then we've got to look at the actual rise and the, and the effects. And the, the rise has occurred primarily since 1900-ish um, and has really uh, accelerated here in recent years. Uh, really, you know, you look at like the 2000s and it's really taken off. It's um, gone from, it was about 300 back and very steady at 300 from thousands of years ago to 1900 when it started increasing. The trouble is, okay, then you would, if the theory holds, expect that there was a slow rise in global temperatures through the 1900s and a horrible rise here since we hit 2000. And that's not the case. In fact, global temperatures have been on a very steady upward climb since 1880. Uh, in fact, in 1895, one of the primary progenitors of the whole notion of ecology and sustainability, John Muir, wrote about the 
retreat of the glaciers in Alaska. And that was before the CO2 levels ever increased. So there's a cause and effect thing here that I think a lot of people are missing. I do want to focus on CO2 though, because to me, if we're obviously affecting what the atmosphere is made of, that should be something that we work on and that we curtail. And so where I think we should be is in exactly what we're doing. And that is private companies now focusing on sustainability. And quite frankly, Kevin, you and I in the manufacturing world, we've been doing that for decades, right? We've been cutting water use. We've been cutting power use. It's just good business. And I, I've made the point over and over, the best sustainability and the best environmental projects are the ones that pay for themselves. Because if you're using fewer resources, you're improving your own bottom line and you're improving the environment and cutting those CO2, CO2 emissions. So I wanna step back from the utter hysteria and you know these grifters who are increasingly taking over our world and feeding us this line of BS and talk about what works in the real world, what's really happening. I would suggest Bjorn Lomborg as the primary uh, source for a rational view of what's really happening. He thinks man-made global, global warming is a real effect. He thinks it's a fairly low priority, but something that we should be focused on, just like I do. Wow, that was a soapbox. Um, I'll, I'll finish with these couple <laughs> predictions. So science is about, you should be able to predict something and if you're right, it happens. If you're wrong and it doesn't happen, then you shut up. And so a lot of these people who say there's this crisis, just two, the National Park Service, back about 20 years ago, put signs up in Glacier National Park saying, in 2020, these glaciers will be gone. Those signs are gone. The glaciers aren't. They had to take them down last year because the glaciers were still there after 2020. The other ones also about the same time, um, some of the main scientists in charge of this whole climate crisis crap said, Britain snows would be a thing of the past by now. Guess what? I just looked up their weather. They're having a snowstorm this weekend. I think global warming is real. I think humans have an effect on it. I think it's manageable. And I think we should focus on getting our CO2 levels down over time. That's where I'm at. Thanks. Christine. I, <laughs> I, um, I too will mark this day down in history, Jim, that you and I are agreeing on so much. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the beauty of this podcast, right? Um, so thank you all for sharing some insights um, so far. I'm going to bring it back to Margot's question that she proposed about bigger companies being held accountable for um, and basically any harm that they're causing the earth, right? It reminds me of our minimum wage episode. We're talking about who's going to hold the standards for minimum wage and, and why did we, why is it such an issue? Who's going to be responsible and what are people losing or not losing? So, you know, maybe this is a little too utopian or whatever, but imagine there's just like a board of folks that oversee what the heck is going on as far as environmental impact with some larger private companies as we're talking about the private sector only and that is the board that everyone's accountable to and that seems awesome <laughs> then it's maybe unbiased folks who are very um, intelligent and experienced and well trained in this particular field and that I think would be awesome how we get to that point I don't I don't totally know. And should companies be held responsible if they are a part of increasing um, CO2 emissions or just the amount of CO2 that's um, in the atmosphere? I think yes. I, but again, I don't know what the answers are. There's this documentary I wish I would have um, 
looked up a little bit more before we had our discussion today, but it talked about all these different ways that they're trying to transform CO2, like these, these big units and machines. I'm not even sure what it would be called, the big unit in, um, I believe, Northern Europe that takes the, all the CO2 and it'll turn it into carbon and then oxygen. And is that a good idea? It sounds like a really good idea. Like a lot of these things sound like a really good idea. And I'm just not sure if that, you know, if, if it's this wait and see process and if we're going to be causing more harm, if we're going to be wasting money, if we're going to do all that, I would like to think that it's all good stuff. I feel like this, this episode in particular, I'm um, kind of more pessimistic than usual. <laughs> but I, I just don't know what the right answer is. You know, we've been fed a certain amount um, uh through the media and then we've been um that our opinions and i don't think that we have been able to tap into enough fact-based evidence um or that and what i mean by haven't tapped into is it's there i think fact-based evidence is there but that's not always what is being shared in the media and that's sometimes like when doing a google search right those are the last few articles that you're going to find you're going to find opinion 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 before that um and i think it's awesome to have opinions that's why we're here having a discussion. There is a pro there is an issue with excess CO2. We have way too much CO2, right? How do we mitigate that? I'm not totally sure. I love Jim's idea about like, hey, how can we just make it better for everyone? Like we reduce resources, which then therefore reduce costs and then therefore reduce reduces hopefully environmental impact. Who the ultimate regulator of all this is going to be, the this board of directors that doesn't exist, I don't know. But I think something along those lines would be the best would be best suited for how we move forward with this and how um, how we can hold private corporations responsible for the decisions that they make that affect that, that affect everyone. You know, these environmental impacts that are going to affect us. The government does not have that same accountability, which again is just echoing the fact that I think it should be kind of overseen by the private sector, and um, which also comes with its own with its own potential problems, but it seems like a better um, solution in this moment to me. Thank you. I like what you said about the big unit, the big unit that uh, sucks up all the CO2, turns it into oxygen. Pretty sure that's probably gonna run off of some type of electricity. So it needs power source from somewhere. So back, back to how do we make things better? We utilize energy for everything. So I think everybody has the individual responsibility to to be responsible for the waste that they create. So it's 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 really tough. And it's I don't think it's a government controlled thing. I think it's more of, you know, Jim and, and Kevin work in manufacturing. So you think about they probably have a process improvement group that that works on logistics and process and all that. And I, I think companies they see the, the the issue, including Amazon. Amazon is awesome about what they're doing today. They whenever you order something, they ask you, do you want to group it with something else? So it comes in one delivery, one box, so you can save. So there's one less box, one less, one less trip, one less everything. So I think companies that want to facilitate a, 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 a very fruitful growth experience are looking at ways to reduce costs and reduce pollution. So I think, I think that takes place. I think it takes place in and Kevin and Jim's environment that they work in, it worked same in my environment. We're all converting to electric vehicles. And one of the issues with electric vehicles is you still have to have transmission lines to get to a charging station. Well, there's a way to fix that. And that's to bring the, the bring the facilities out to the charging station. So you don't have to worry about the transmission line or basically get them closer to the, the charging stations. 
Because if you look at most of your solar farms, you look at most of your wind farms, all your hydro, all that stuff's built away from the cities. None, none, of, those, none of those power sources are anywhere close to the cities. And they were built that way for a reason, just because land was cheap and there's nothing to impede uh, the getting a good amount of wind. And, and you build dams outside of, uh, outside of the communities. You don't build them inside the communities. And you can't do solar you know, in places where you have uh, uh, big shaded buildings and things like that. So you just got to figure out how to get that stuff closer to the source that's using it versus you know, tearing up the earth and causing more, causing more damage to get transmission lines in. I love some of your points there, Edwin. And I think, um, you know, my my optimistic view, Christine, because I was a little pessimistic there, is we are solving these problems. And and I love, you know, you brought up the point about this system that can break CO2 down into carbon and oxygen, which is marvelous. Edwin pointed out, though, that it probably runs on electricity. So if you're hooking it to our old grid, it's probably not a big win. But, you know, then the downside of, uh wind and solar is they're intermittent so hooking them to a grid is dumb because all you're doing is adding a generator that you can't count on and you still have to have the coal or gas backup for when those things aren't functioning but if you hook it to your system christine which doesn't have to run all the time now it makes sense now wind and solar have a right place to function where they're not going to cause problems they're going to create solutions similarly hook it to a clean hydrogen generator and i think that's what we're going to see edwin mentioned evs you know that's absolutely one part of the solution um do i think everyone needs to go to evs no because we're not going to have the grid to handle it um plus they require materials from china and from russia that we number one don't want to get from those places and number two um that are going to be increasing in costs and and you know, you'll get the cost of evs now it's already out of reach for most of the purchasing public so um the mix of solutions is going to be where we land and how we get this under control and i think it's going to happen through private industry continuing down the path we're on i do have a lot of optimism for that and i do think we're going to start to see co2 increases tapering off um will we get to net zero by 2030 no should we no well like you said i'm just this is one of the things when i started my question was that just a kind of a trivial joke and this is one of the things that i want to kind of get my hands around it's because it was, it was a good it, joke okay it was a good joke <laughs> And and I've taken this whole episode with that grain of salt because we are talking about it. And it, I, like I said, this is the first time really when I'm just listening to Jim's voice and Christine, they're very passionate about it. Okay. And when we have those hard conversations, when you're making your stomach up, it, it kind of turns. That means there is a problem with it. And I, I wanted to kind of start with that is because when you talk to it, everyone wants to have their what uh, view on how to look at it. that's where it starts is getting people to start thinking about it do we have to agree that there is a problem and we have to manage that problem respectively accordingly financially government everybody has to put back there to sit there and say is that private sector needs to do it government needs to sit there and hold people accountable to making sure we're doing things not saying it has to be in our pocket but po put policies and procedures so that we can continue to move ahead as one if not, if we don't move ahead and have that vision, we have chaos. 
And right now, we're going to be faced with chaos before we get this together. And I think that's sometimes where government needs to come in and control the chaos. That's just my take right now. And that's why I kind of started off with just a trivial joke, because it's not trivial. It is everyone has to make a difference. Big businesses, small companies, households, everyone, collectively as a whole. Thank you all for that. And now I'd like to go ahead and transition to closing statements. Jim, if you'd like to go ahead and start us out. Great conversation, team. Uh, I agree with Kevin on something here, too. <laughs> so this is a banner day. Yeah, there is a lot of passion. And I think uh, we as a group realize that this is something uh, among many priorities that we've got to grapple with. And, uh, you know, we've talked about ways that we either are or are working toward. And uh, that further gives me that optimism. I do have to disagree with you as well, though, Kevin. I do not share your uh, belief that government can bring order to chaos. I think I think government government brings chaos to order and increasingly is either the residents or the supporter of those grifters and fear mongers that I decried earlier. Um, I have no belief in government helping with this problem. The more they get out of it, the better off we're gonna be. Private industry um, and consumers working together. I mean, consumers are holding companies accountable now. We've talked about that uh, in a number of these issues. Consumers increasingly look to the people that they're potentially gonna buy from and say, you know, are they going after the problems that I hold near and dear to my heart? And if they're not, I'm not gonna buy from them. So I do think that uh, private industry will continue to be the leader in this. I do have a lot of optimism about the solutions we've talked about. We didn't mention nuclear. I think we're gonna see a lot of advances in nuclear, making it both safer and more flexible. Um, so I'm gonna close with that. I, I have a lot of pessimism around what's going on today. I have a lot of optimism for the future. Thank you, Jim. And Christine, if you'd like to go ahead and give us your closing statement for today. Absolutely. Thanks, Margo. I, I guess I'm, how I'm thinking about ending this or where I'm leaving this conversation is a call to action for us as individuals, as others, other um, panelists have brought up that, you know, we might be one person or one family, one little drop in this whole big planet. Um, and I'm not sure how else change is going to manifest unless we start to do our part, um, whatever that means to you. I mean, I, I'm the one, I have an Amazon account, I do, and I use it and, <laughs> and it saves the day. And I also understand how lazy I could become if I rely on that convenience. Like, I, this is unheard of that this stuff can be delivered to my house overnight with free shipping, you know, if need be or something. That that to me is just mind blowing. So that's one instance where I could become lazy. And I think that I need to keep that in mind when thinking about energy and the environment, which coach is right. He's known me since I was a teenager and, you know, the tree hugger, you name it. I've been called all the things and that's fine because to me, that means I love this planet and other people interpret that I love this planet and wanna do the next right thing, even if it's, you know, even if I make a wrong choice, it's still doing my best to do the next right thing. So um, my, my call is to this group and to anyone listening, just consider what maybe you could shift in your life um, and consider where you're choosing to source your products from and where, and, and what the ripple effect has by choosing to invest in there, whether that's um, in fact to our environment or the energy. A call to action. And 
this may sound corny. I know we're not in elementary classroom, but talk to your kids about it. You know, they're going to talk to their kids about it and, you know, bringing it up at meetings um, in community schools and whatever it might be. Sometimes it's just that little consideration that those little steps are um, going to help, going to help maintain this earth. I don't think we're on the outs in the next 20, 30 years, like I hear some folks say, but I would really not love to see us dig ourselves in a deeper, um, a deeper hole than, than what we are as far as how we relate to energy and how we, how we choose to use it. Thanks, Margo. Thank you, Christine. And Edwin, if you'd like to go ahead and give us your closing statement for today. Yeah, well, since everybody's agreeing with everybody with certain things, I will jump on. I agree with Christine and I think it was a, you know, this topic is tough because there's so many different views and, and I think a lot of people have a lot of ideas on how to improve. And in doing some research, I did realize there, there are a lot of think tanks out there that all they're looking to do is looking for people to have ideas on how to reduce or eliminate the dependency on fossil fuels. I think you know, as long as we keep expanding those think tanks and trying to find ways to do that, I think uh, the individual responsibility of each person to do what they can to improve the situation, to bridge us to a better environment where we've got, you know, privatized industry coming up with a better way to do things and re reduce the dependency on fossil fuels. I think that's the only way we can go. We have to, we have to bridge ourselves till something like that comes up and the only way to do that is take an individual responsibility for having a better and cleaner environment. So thank you. Thank you, Edwin. And Kevin, finally, would you like to go ahead and give us your closing statement for today? Yeah, for me, being the last one, Jim, Christine, and I, would, I you know, love listening to you guys' point of views on this topic. Uh, one thing I can honestly say when I'm looking at this piece, one thing I, I have to continuously disagree, wholeheartedly disagree with Jim when you're talking about government. Because right now, you are having the option to sit there today as a free individual in this country telling that government should not play a role in what we look at today. To me, it is the foundation of keeping chaos controlled because today we are faced with so much going in this world with Russia and Ukraine. And those individuals who are living in those countries don't have a government that we have today that you can actually speak your mind and saying big government should not be in, involved in this process. I totally disagree because you have that right. Other countries and the pleasures of as I've traveled this world so hardly to sit there and see people, we seem to forget about what our government has allowed us to do. Jim, but I, I really, when you're talking about government, I know government does not want to be in your pocket. I know you want to talk about taxes, but look where you have the freedom to do. And I think this is the one, like you said, with Christine, we have to stand together as a nation, as a people, as the government, all those things to fight this problem. So with that being peace, Margo, it's a great episode, but I'm going to continue to challenge that there is a part that government plays in our society today, allowing us to do what we do. Thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode. If you've not listened to our episode on taxes, I implore you to go back. You can join us next time on our episode of LGBTQ plus rights. You can find us on our website at madforus.org or on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook.